What is population health? Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science covers these topics and more. Join us. Aresha Martinez Cardoso from the University of Chicago. Mike Esposito from Washington University in St. Louis. Daryl Hudson, also from Washington University in St. Louis. Twice a month as we discuss cutting edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations. So maybe you all are getting back to work in your offices in person, or you might potentially be resigning from your job during what labor folks are calling the great resignation. It's a crazy time out there for work, and yet work takes up so much of our lives. To help us understand what businesses are and should be doing to keep the workers happy, how we need to think strategically about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace, we're joined today by Dr. Courtney McClooney. Dr. McClooney works as an assistant professor of organizational behavior in the ILR school at Cornell University, where she studies, writes, and teaches about the ways that organizational practices, norms, and policies perpetuate marginalization and how marginalized individuals and organizations in turn navigate and resist these inequities. Her work has been featured in leading academic journals and popular media outlets. And she also engages in consulting work with companies and organizations across the country. Thank you so much, Courtney, for joining us on the podcast. We're so excited to have you. Yes, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Okay, so to start off, work is such an interesting space to work in. Um, can you tell us what got you started with your interest in research on workplaces? and how your career and your interests have developed over time? I would say studying organizations um, was probably always part of how I thought about the world. I, I'm a daddy's girl and I observed my father sort of move through different workspaces from manufacturing plants to becoming managers of those plants and seeing how he interacted with his coworkers from different walks of life. And, I realized that, that was one of the only times both in his life but then also in my life as a child that we were interacting with people who were different than us mm. our communities and neighborhoods we grew up in the churches that we went to were all mostly black and mostly of the same socioeconomic background uh, but at work is where you're meeting people who had completely different upbringings than you did and somehow there's this expectation that you all have a shared interest in this vision of the company and can work together to make a difference in the world um, and that was always fascinating to me, like, well, how is that an expectation? And because workplaces are sort of like a microcosm of society, I thought of it as almost like an interesting testing ground to figuring out how the broader society can work together towards shared and mutual goals, if some of those things are already happening inside of a workplace. Uh, so figuring out like, why are workplaces so quote unquote successful, and at least getting people in the door and doing work that is aimed towards some sort of product or service that's being developed. Um, and what insights from organizations can we take and bring into society but at the same time there's a lot of issues going on in workplaces as well a lot of rampant discrimination and inequality and inequity a uh, lot lots of mirroring essentially of what's going on in society as well 
Um, so I think that can also be a testing lab for interventions. Like how do we stop people from automatically stereotyping or discriminating against folks here uh, where we have very clear mechanisms and drivers in terms of how you're hiring, promoting, and retaining folks. And then can we take those lessons into society and vice versa? There are some tools that are working in society to bring groups of people together. And will that be useful in the workplace? Um, especially because in the US, especially, uh, most people will spend a majority of their lives at work in, in our mm. current structure of work these days. So figuring out what is working there, I think is gonna be really important for promoting the health and well-being of our society since everyone's expected to go through it in some form. Courtney, can you talk a little bit more about like what those interventions are that you're talking about that and how they translate to the real world? This is real selfish. The other day I was teaching my health class and we were having a discussion about psychology and kind of thinking about kind of like biases and interpersonal kind of like interactions. And then like a student was like, okay, like what are some of these interventions that kind of like work? Like where can we intervene? Are they effective? I had no idea because I just know nothing about this area whatsoever. So can you give me an answer that I can get to that student? Absolutely, I'll, I'll try my best. Um, so I often think about organizations from a human resource lens. Um, so thinking about, our retention, recruitment, and promotion processes. So when we think about recruitment, um, oftentimes people think of the applicant phase, like we're looking at an application that has been sent to our company and we're making a decision of whether or not we'd like to select this person to join our organization. Uh, there's so many more precursors that go into that. What pools of labor are you selecting from? Uh, do most of the people who are, who are actually being recruited into your company, are they coming from certain backgrounds, certain universities, et cetera? So some helpful interventions is to even get people to pay attention to where they're advertising their job openings. Uh, I have a close friend and colleague who's a new chief diversity officer of a um, scientific laboratory that has people working across all sectors and levels. So there's scientists, but there's also plumbers and people working on more of the mechanics of the naval ships that they are part of. And they realize that in order to recruit some of the best plumbers who come from a different SES and school background, they're scientists, they actually had to send out flyers and mailers mm. to people's mailing addresses because not mm. everyone has email addresses um, or even putting things in different languages is not assuming that everyone's uh, first language is English. Uh, some of those interventions are the ways that we can broaden that applicant pool and make it more diverse so that you're actually recruiting from a more diverse place to begin with, which can mm -hmm. ultimately help your uh, recruitment pipeline when it comes to recruiting more people from diverse backgrounds. Uh, so that's like one intervention example is, is just being mindful of where it is that you're actually sourcing your talent from. And I hope that your student and anyone who's listening to this in a few months will check out uh, some a new course that I helped to create at eCornell. Uh, it is on effective practices for hiring, recruiting uh, diverse talent. And it is in collaboration with other faculty at the School of Industrial Labor Relations at Cornell University. Uh, we have, I think, three courses that we've laid out, mostly for hiring managers, but really for people from all different sectors and spheres. And we talk about a lot of these uh, effective practices, not so effective practices mm -hmm. when it comes to hiring, recruiting, and retaining uh, people from mostly marginalized backgrounds. So that there's my plug. Yeah, <laughs> <Thank> right. <you>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on. Yeah. All right, yeah. Courtney is in incredibly entrepreneurial, which we'll talk about in a second. So like the fact that you have this e-course, that's like pretty dope. Um, as a follow-up to Mike's question, so when I think about like these places that are diversifying or these sort of interesting interventions, I think of places like Google, Amazon, tech workers, um, 
academia sometimes, like hospitals, right? I don't think about like the places that my parents worked, right? Like my mom worked in city government. My dad's a mechanic. My grandparents were farm workers, right? I don't think like, I think it's like the granola e companies, Peloton, right? Who are doing these sort of things, um, which is fantastic and great. We'll, we'll come to that, but not like, I don't know, the Walmarts of the world, right? Or like the smaller places, maybe Walmart, right? Maybe like Walmart, like C-suite, right? But not like your everyday minimum wage Joe Schmo worker, right? Is that like an accurate read or do you feel like, yeah, yeah. I mean, just, can, yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, you're touching on so many interesting things that I show. One being that when we think about tech companies, we ignore the manual laborers that are mm -hmm. also part of tech companies. So Uber, for instance, is a tech organization, but majority of its workers are contract gig workers that lack any sort of protections, like legal rights to sue companies, right, and not having benefits or retirement plans, and they're also underpaid, overworked, uh, but they're not the prototypical tech uh, employee that we think of. And so that distinction, I think, is starting to come to an head with more of these uh, more gig-based contract uh, organizations having unions form uh, because people are trying to seek protections. I even think about this with the companies as liberal as Starbucks also right. starting to unionize around the country because they're realizing that their frontline barista workers are actually the ones that are carrying the brunt of any sort of activism or movement that the company is, is heralding at the top and really making top-down decisions that affects their day-to-day -day lives. And then pointing out corporate giants like Walmart is fascinating because when we think about the actual geographic location of some of these companies, uh, not to mention the offshore product development that's happening in a lot of countries that have been previously colonized, and they're still colonized in various ways because they're supplying these corporate giants. Um, and then in, in, for Walmart in particular, they also use a lot of prison labor. And that's a mm. whole other conversation yeah. about your actual workforce and who counts as mm -hmm. a Walmart employee. Uh, but Walmart in particular tends to be one of the largest employers of a lot of rural and southern states. Um, and they're oftentimes the only employer for miles in, of where most people live. So that allows two things to happen. One, you're more likely to... Um, you know, get a job in a minimum wage position and not complain about it because mm -hmm. uh, it's the only job around. And I think what we're seeing, I think Tesla just had a case come out of racial discrimination where at least for the past decade, as far as we know, uh, Black and Latino workers have been complaining about the extreme forms of racism they've experienced in these manufacturing plants, mostly based in California, uh, but how they also felt like there was very little things they could do about it because it was the only... Um, manufacturing plant paying livable wage in their area. Uh, and so mm -hmm. there's, I think, some interesting challenges there where most of the headquartered offices are in liberal spaces like New York City, like Los Angeles, uh, like these other major cities, and they can make these bold claims. But what's actually happening on the ground does not always reflect what's happening in the C-suite, as you said. Um, so this is, I think, a real interesting challenge and also a need to reimagine what we think about as work. Um, and who we think about as workers. I imagine organizations would be a lot more powerful from a worker standpoint if everyone realized that they are workers, not just the people who are on the front line. Uh, just because you wear a suit doesn't mean that you're also not being overworked and underpaid uh, and, and experiencing different forms of exhaustion than people who are doing the manual labor. So what would that sort of coalition look like if people are bridging across these class divides that are being created through our organizations? I'm gonna get off my soapbox now. <laughs> 
I'm the best. <laughs> I have so many thoughts about this issue. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what we, we have this podcast for, is for people to get on their proverbial soapboxes mm-hmm. and to riff. And so we're really happy to have someone with your expertise. And it's, it's cool that you have traversed all these different disciplines from psychology to the corporate space. And as you mentioned before, um, this stuff is really timely, all these different cases around, around the country, thinking about um, whether it's organizing around unions or thinking about ways to upset the, the, the current status. Um, but I want to go back to, to a point that Mike made earlier. So there's a lot of work and thought that goes into hiring, but not as much work about how to make a place you know, Mm. retain folks Mm -hmm. and making it equitable there. And even on the way in, a lot of people, especially people from working class backgrounds, um, I can't remember what what studies have found this, but it seems like working class people, often especially white Americans, believe that people of color had some type of advantage, like affirmative action. So they don't actually need to do anything to hire people into small firms, small businesses that employ lots of people because they're like, you all already have all these benefits. But of course that translates into what's happening in terms of the treatment of people in firms and in companies and, and whatever the, the, the sector might be. So I was just wondering if you can talk a little bit about the, the climate once people get in the door and, and what are some of the things that we need to do to improve that climate? out the need for interdisciplinary scholarship and conversations to have a critical view and understanding of organizations and society. So having a strong foundation of the legal uh, precedent that has been made in organizations like Affirmative Action that uh, at the bare minimum prevented explicit forms of discrimination and only for companies of a certain size. Hmm. So if your company is small, you are not beholden to Affirmative Action rules and laws. And affirmative action requires so much burden of proof (laughs) to prove that you have been discriminated against, to prove that there has been a pay inequity, to prove that this form of mistreatment falls under the clause of discrimination, which I think gets into some of my other research around code switching and hairstyles Mm -hmm. um, and even how people speak and their accent and um, how that can lead to other forms of discrimination. Uh, But when you bring up climate, it makes me think about a couple things. Uh, One, the important need, I can't believe you're still having this conversation in 2022, uh, to disentangle diversity practices from equity practices, from inclusion practices, and from justice practices. And what I often tell organizations who seek me for consulting or want to learn more about my work, um, you're bringing me here because you think you have a diversity problem, but what you actually have is an equity problem or an inclusion problem. Uh, And if you fix those things, the diversity will come. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think people assume that people of color don't talk to each other and tell them how horrific their work experiences have (laughs) been. I know we do in the academy. uh, and, And we'll speak about you know, how awful things are in particular institutions and how to either prepare yourself for that or to avoid it altogether. Um, And so your lack of diversity should be seen now as a true reflection of your inability to create equitable policies and practices that remove the barriers for people to actually enter and stay in your workforce. Um, I think about this in government, for instance, where having unpaid internships is still a very normative part mm-hmm. of entering into government life and, and pursuing that. Um, and that privileges a certain select group of people who can afford to not be paid for an extended period of time. Um, 
So that's an equity issue. We're dealing with new equity issues now with remote work. Um, and remote work has opened up lots of doors for people who physically could not enter workplaces that were not accessible or workplaces that did not provide um, reasonable hours and accommodations for those that have caregiving responsibilities. Uh, so this has become a new equity issue uh, and companies that try to mandate return to work are ignoring all the different unique qualities of their workforce and why remote work would be such an attractive strategy for keeping people in. Mm. And so when I think about climates for inclusion, it's a combination of your policies and your practices. Do you actually have policies in place that are being, that are mindful that I have these additional needs, that I am more than just a worker, that I actually want to live and enjoy my life and do so with a livable wage and with reasonable hours? Um, and is your climate also one that acknowledges and sees me as a different person and actually celebrates that, not hoping that I will conform one day or assimilate to the dominant mode of looking, thinking, existing, mm -hmm. uh, presenting myself, et cetera. So, yeah, I think there's there's a lot there to unpack. I hope I like was able to scratch some of the surface there. Oh, absolutely. It's so funny you say that because I think like one of the first months that I was at where I currently work in Chicago, I had a meeting or I had a dinner with the the provost and he was like, you, you're a diverse person. <laughs> he doesn't work here anymore. He was like, well, why can't we get more, you know, first gen women of color? Like, and I, I was like, well, like the problem is, is like in these spaces, we know that you can't bring what people say, like your full self to work. And like, it's just hard to like want to be in a place, like knowing even, and I did not hear this from anybody else. I didn't know anybody else that worked in my institution. I just like knew that like working in this kind of place was gonna be a challenge, right? And he was just like, hmm, don't know what you mean, moving on, you know? But I was like, okay, <laughs> yeah. this is true, right? Like it is, like, it's really, it's it's not that like people don't want and they can't get the foot in the door. It's they're just like, nope from the jump, you know? Yeah. It's exhausting, both mentally, emotionally, psychologically, to wear a mask all day, yeah, in addition yeah, to the yeah. physical mask that we're working, yeah. wearing for COVID. <laughs> we need new phrases now. Wearing a mask has a new meaning. Um, but uh, uh, to not be able to be your full authentic self and to kind of perform all day as, mm -hmm. as uh, what my colleagues and I study code switching call your white self at work. It's like your mm -hmm. white self is who's accepted. Um, I'll give you an example of a consulting client I had that mostly worked in customer service around technology. And I was training their managers, most of whom were white, and they were trying to learn how to more effectively train uh, their Black and Latino workforce. And what they were realizing was um, their consumers preferred white sounding voices on the phone. They preferred a certain uh, banter, rapport, back and forth, and you'd be able to talk about golf and Gossip Girl, whatever. Um, <laughs> and if their employees didn't do that, <laughs> no shade to those who watch Gossip Girl. I, I don't watch Gossip Girl, but um, no shade to the, to the people who do do that. And I'm not to say that these groups of people are monolithic, mm -hmm. but um, the cultural norms were not aligned with most of their consumer base. And those employees were getting lower ratings mm -hmm. and therefore less bonuses, less likely to be promoted, et cetera. And so I asked them as managers, are you training your employees to code switch? Is that what you want? If so, you one need to be upfront about that and be transparent mm -hmm. if that is what you want. And then also pay equitably because that is more exhausting and taxing and you are requiring them to do something in a, above and beyond their actual jobs. If you're not willing to pay equitably for that, then you need to change your policies and practices and actually coach your consumers. 
to mm-hmm. learn to embrace different sounding voices with accents, with mm-hmm. people who have different cultural interests and norms. Um, and so of course they want to go the latter route where they're like helping their consumer base learn to listen to other voices um, by having more, uh, at this time, more visual aids in addition to audio aids um, to, to share with their consumers. Like this is who you know our company is and this is who we reflect and here are all these different voices and they're all here to help you with your technology, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But it, it was fascinating. It's like you're, you're basically chaining them to switch who they are so that your consumers will be happy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I want to ask a question about that. Um, we we think about bring our full authentic self to work, and I have a broad question, which may be controversial, but is that a possibility? Because I think there's some debate in in my my very, you know, that's why I'm glad we have an expert on here <laughs> to talk about these. Because I'm just peripherally, I see these other spaces in the literature that talk about you know oftentimes lots of people feel imposter syndrome or they feel like there's a need to stretch so whenever they're getting their a new opportunity or a new you know job task responsibilities etc there's going to be some stretching and some discomfort that occurs but we know that's not exactly equitable and like you said there's some additional things we'll say some mask wearing double triple mask that people were having to apply to themselves but I'm wondering if is it possible and even in 2022 um where you can really expect for people to show up in their full authentic self um now I know that's a big question but I wonder what you think I'm a little bit of a cynic so I'm like absolutely not <laughs> I think like the biggest question I usually get, especially around my work in code switching and should you bring your holes out to work is, are you telling everyone to code switch? And my answer to that is the favorite academic answer is like, it depends. It depends on the situation. It depends on what you want to get out of this exchange, right? This interaction. It depends on how long you think you can keep this up. Um, like, do you have the capacity to sustain this code switching behavior? Is it a one-off interaction? Are you trying to survive an encounter? Um, or is it something that you're going to have to do day after day? And those are like important questions that everyone should ask themselves whenever they're presented with, like you said, these opportunities to choose how is it that I want to show up today. Um, it can be a good source of information, too, as you're on a job interview. Are you feeling pressure to modulate your behavior and tone? Um, are people looking at you funny or differently if you do start speaking Spanish, for instance, in the middle of your like uh, speaking about yourself or is the excitement and how most people of color are very expressive with their faces and with their hands is that something that people are looking at you you know funny or, or seem taken aback uh, from your behavior those could be good indicators for you on whether or not do you think this place is a space that will welcome you fully expressing yourself as you are um whether or not i think it's possible i'll, I'll put it like this uh, slack did a survey in 2021 Uh, And they asked people, you know, how many of you want to come back to work? 97% of Black people said they did not ever want to go back into Mm. their physical workplace. Um, And and I was quoted in a New York Times article written by Ruchika Tulsian, who has a book coming out called Inclusion on Purpose. And she interviewed a lot of women of color, a lot of Asian, Black, Latino, and Indigenous women um, for various different things that are going on in the world affecting all these communities disproportionately. But but one of the things I talked about was how 2020 and 2021 was the first time in my 
career that I have not had someone touch my hair or try to touch my hair at work. And it was because I was working from home. Yeah. <laughs> and that is the first time that that has never happened, right? And I've been doing this work for, you know, a decade now. Graduate students do work and we need to like be able to recall that work too. Because uh, we, we were doing work as well when we were grad students. But um, every year, every week almost, there would be some fear that I, I will feel a hand just, you know, all up in my braids or my fro or whatever. Um, and that is uncomfortable too, for so many reasons. Uh, and so I feel like I am starting to become my more authentic self at work in a remote work environment. Mm. Uh, like more of myself is showing because I don't have to physically worry about my safety as much, if that makes sense. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how many people start to leave their jobs if they do force them to come back to work and what proportion of those people will identify as people of color, as black people. Um, as people from other marginalized groups. Because I can imagine there's a lot of freedom and just sense of safety when you don't have to worry about um, certain interactions anymore. Uh, that was heavy. <laughs> was, uh, I'm like, I, why am I in the office right now? <laughs> Go home and be free. <laughs> well, I just, I wonder about it so much. Because uh, like you're saying, Courtney, the, the vigilance that goes into it, um, the health effects of this constant performance, whether it's in, and it's not just workplace, it's anytime you're in a public setting. So you're going to the grocery store, you're going to the gym. Like there's even research that shows that people mm. feel apprehensive going to take their jog outside. And we could, and that was before Ahmaud Aubrey. So, um, you know, it's all these different spaces that people are interacting. And I think if you're upperly mobile, and you're at these elite institutions like we all work at, um, just being a black body in those spaces means so much. I mean, it's, it's a, a beacon of hope in so many ways. And it's, it's something that people feel very proud about, but it's also taxing. Like you said, people are like, if 97% of people are like, I'd rather just stay at home. Um, that, that, that's saying something. Burnout is a new, uh, according to the World Health Organization, burnout was added as a new occupational hazard that disproportionately affects the United States and other Western societies that work too much. Um, and so part of it was overwork, but it was also like the culture of work in these countries is leading to burnout, which has been described and defined as like emotional exhaustion, a sense of depersonalization from the work that you're doing. So you have a disconnect between this meaning that you have for your overall life and, and your actual work. Um, then also just increasing number of cynicism that you don't believe things get better uh, and you're actually, you know, more pessimistic overall. And, and burnout certainly has long-term health effects um, similar to vigilance where it's just eroding your body's natural functions and processes and you're existing in your stress mode for too long or having spiked levels of cortisol, et cetera. Um, and I think for people of color, especially having to engage in this performance and code switching, my colleagues and I found in our work that that is highly correlated with both vigilance and burnout. Hmm. Um, so those are not good indicator signs for long-term interactions. And this is going back to my earlier conversation about should I code switch or not? It's like for the short term, maybe, but if it's a longer term thing, now we're talking about all these sustained health impacts of you engaging in this behavior. So there's, there's questions there. So to step back a little bit, um, you know, you've talked about some of the work that you've done, diversifying inclusive spaces, and 
you know, one of the reasons that we wanted to do this podcast is, you know, a reflection two years later. So a couple of summers ago, you, we saw this explosion of DEI efforts all across the country with everybody bought all these books and went to these walkouts and had these teach-ins and co companies posted on their Instagrams and their Twitters, right? And, you know, we're going to invest and we're going to train and we're going to do all of these things. So now we are two years later, right? What is your read on these efforts? You know, did everybody hop on a bag wagon, but nothing changed? Are we seeing meaningful progress? Um, did we just retool this to implicit bias training? You know, so what is your interpretation now that we're two years out and like, there's no excuses, right? What did you do the last two years, right? My goodness, that's a big question. Um, I do have some early data on this that my grad students and I are working through where we surveyed a lot of employees inside of companies that had made public statements denouncing systemic racism. Um, and we filtered the statements by, you know, did they mention the name of George Floyd? Did they say racism? Like what, uh, how is it that companies are communicating even what is going on? And within that communication, how are they positioning themselves as an organization? Some companies said, we are part of the problem. We have contributed to the prison industrial complex. We have contributed to dependence on uh, opioid drugs. Like, like some companies are kind of very transparent and forthcoming about their role. Others still describe racism as something that happens out there and not in here. Like we are against that kind of racism, but they don't see their own kind of racism that's sort of emerging and part of their day-to-day -day life. And for any company that doesn't think they have a racist problem, look around. And if you don't see a proportionate representation of people from different backgrounds, then you have a racist problem. So we just consider some more explicit and on the nose and others more passive. Um, my phone was ringing off the hook last in 2020. Everyone and their mama wanted to have a Black woman come speak about systemic racism and to say we had this conversation. It almost felt like a check the box type of feel where everyone wants to be inspired and motivated. But these looked more like different activities and events and not an overall equity strategy. Like these are our actual outcomes that we hope to take. We're gonna experiment in these ways with building in equity into our company. Um, it, we know that there's gonna be some risk involved. We know there's gonna be a long-term investment. I didn't see a lot of that across the board. It was looking for short-term gains. It was looking for immediate media and consumer approval, right? Some of the companies that you mentioned earlier as seen as having a more uh, equitable lens or focus. There are also companies that are considered household names or have a more public presence and persona. So their public perception of Starbucks matters a lot more than the public perception of um, a company that we've never heard of, right? Even though those companies also exist and also make a lot of money, they're just not part of our everyday conversation. Uh, but the public perception ones, I think they've been doing more talking, they've been hiring more chief diversity officers, they've been doing a lot of the public facing symbolic work, but whether or not substantive changes have been made are a question. And that's what we're uncovering in our data. A lot of the employees do feel like symbolically, publicly, these statements have been made, but we haven't seen a reflection in practices. Another thing that emerged in that moment was exhaustion in, I would say, roughly three different forms. The first form of exhaustion came from the mostly Black uh, people who were either tasked with helping to move or advance the DEI strategy, put their trauma on display, talk about how horrific everything is and we want you to listen to us. Um, and also just being exhausted from everyone all of a sudden feigning interest in their lived experiences. That has been the case for hundreds of years. Um, so that was one form of exhaustion. 
Another form of exhaustion was, I think, in the mostly Asian community where we haven't had very explicit conversations about race and racism at the same level that we do when we talk about uh, immigration, which in this case in the US mostly refers to people immigrating from the southern border, not necessarily from Europe, even though they're immigrants too. Um, and also we've seen just horrific increase in violence uh, targeting East Asian folks in response to COVID-19. And that has persisted to this day. Lots of Asian women in particular have been targeted with uh, extreme forms of violence and hatred that have been horrific in nature and kind. Um, and those have also been committed by sometimes other people of color, but disproportionately mostly white people and people who identify as white supremacists. Um, so that has been a new conversation that I don't think a lot of companies were prepared for, mm -hmm. including a lot of the Asian folks inside of those companies who have not had to uh, talk about racism as much and, and may be struggling to figure out how it is that we bring this into a US conversation. The third form of exhaustion that we see both in our data, but also something I've, I've heard, our white people are exhausted from talking about race. <laughs> After the first few months, Pew Research showed that support for Black Lives Matter dipped to lower than it had been before 2020 or even yeah. before 2015 maybe three to six months after George Floyd was murdered. So there was like, oh yes, we're interested. And all of a sudden it was like, oh no, we're tired and exhausted. This is too much. Um, and companies that I go to, the, the 2020, 2021 talks, oh yes, race, race, race. The last few talks I've done, can you just say marginalization? We, we know that race is a problem, but there's other people that have problems too. You know, we, we want to talk about neurodiversity now. What about women? I'm like, are black women not a thing? <laughs> are like, are, do people of color not have autism? I, I'm sorry, I didn't know that we can just switch groups and, and not have to have a conversation about how these overlapping systems of oppression are always at play. And when you center a group that has been oppressed and exploited in a capitalist way for so long, especially when we talk about organizations, you actually get um, a broader understanding of all these systems. Um, so that form of exhaustion, like we are tired of having this conversation after you just started having it, that has been both disappointing, not at all surprising, and something that's gonna be the new hurdle to get to work through. It's like, how do we help white people uh, build some resilience and some grit and all the things they always try to teach impoverished <laughs> people how to do, it can be less fragile and like be yeah. able to hold space for these conversations and, and embrace their discomfort just for a little bit longer so we can make progress. Like that, that to me is the new challenge. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's incredible, right? The whole like critical race theory conversation and backlash that came out, what, like a year, maybe a year. I was like, we were just all posted, you know, our black fist <laughs> last summer. And right. now, you know, like, it's just, it's incredible. Now we're banning books. Now we're, now banning we're, yeah, yeah, we're yeah. in passing laws at the state level where we can't make people feel uncomfortable. I was like, since when was this comfort? If that, if that is something that I could have been protected from legally, then why the hell? <laughs> like, like, like discomfort, you don't know discomfort, right? Or, or like, we just need new terms um, because discomfort and how it's experienced with different groups varies widely. Um, yeah. yeah. That, that brings up another question, Courtney, and uh, it might be another impossible answer. So <laughs> I'm good for those. Um, and I don't have the answers to these questions either. So don't feel any pressure there. Fair. <laughs> um, but I'm kind of curious about, you mentioned the, the kind of work that you've been, you've been doing, which is absolutely exhausting and hats off to you for going around the country, crusading and, and, and telling people about what's happening. And um, if you are anything like me, when you give these talks and you talk about it with your family and 
social network, they're like, they paid you to do that? Like, we can tell you that for free. Um, <laughs> but nothing to miss the work that you're doing for sure. But it's, it's something that people are like, wow, like people are actually giving voice to what we experience and putting it in, in the space. But going back to the conversation we were having about um, white Americans and their kind of stomach or grit or lack thereof, related to learning about racism. Um, kind of curious about what the right answer is, especially in corporate spaces. Like, is it awareness? Is it education campaigns? Because a lot of people think, even now, I'm not racist. So something can happen that, you know, we would perceive as this was a racist event. Like that, that definitely had tinges of racism and people could see the same event and say, well, it wasn't that it was, X, Y, and Z, it was social class. It was just like you were saying, like kind of expanding the umbrella and bring in different types of identities and whatnot. But all that to say, given the, the, the stomach or lack of a stomach for talking about racism, do you think it's just awareness? Do you think it's a campaign of some sort? Is it educating people about the different levels of racism? Is it um, mandating? Like that's how the, the government has done a lot of work in terms of breaking down walls of discrimination. Like it's illegal to do this or in the, in the military, like forcing integration. Like what, what do you think is, is the right approach? I think it depends on what outcome we're looking for. Uh, like if we're totally fine with existing in a society that has discrimination disparities for much longer then we can continue to go the education and awareness route, because I think willful ignorance is a much more powerful state of being in instead of I increasing awareness. Um, so Michael Krauss, who's a professor at the Yale School of Management, uh, has done a lot of interesting work on willful ignorance. So even when you show people data and statistics and facts, they still are way less likely to accept them as uh, valid and will question the source of the information, who it refers to, and they often bring in um, exemplars to rules. Like you're saying that majority of people of color in this country are poor, so they'll start mentioning people like Oprah and uh, you know, like LeBron James as Ron, an example. Yeah. It's not the case, right? Um, so there's, I think, a lot of internalized defensive responses to solely the awareness and education route. Um, so I think for me personally, I, I want a couple things to happen sort of simultaneously. And this may not be a popular opinion, especially in a country that cares so much about liberty and freedom and choice. Um, but I do think there needs to be some force mandated policies that are into play. I am a fan of quota systems. I am a fan of forcing people to do the things um, because I, I don't think that real change will happen until that does. Um, that is what this country has shown us until enslaved people were emancipated. It didn't matter how many good white folks existed, enslavement existed and it persisted mm -hmm. until it was legally removed. So until we legally mandate some removal, integration, like it's not just gonna happen on its own, personally is what I believe. Um, and I think what needs to happen more at the social level, and this is even getting into the levels of racism, right? Um, is that we need to have a lot more, not just conversations, but our understanding of, of language and the terms that we're using are not even shared at, at this point anymore. Um, so I did design a class on advancing racial equity at work and I won a, an award from the Aspen Institute as the Ideas, Best Ideas for Teaching Award in 2021. Um, and it was mostly white students. And what we did was spend the first month of that class talking all about how do we feel 
when it's time to have this conversation about race and racism, can you name your feeling? Can you identify where it comes from? Tell me your, your story. When was the first time you ever heard about race, uh, your own race? Um, what role do you think you play in this movement towards racism? And we had some difficult conversations in that class. And I was like, we have to make room and space for this. Um, some people could drop the class, right? They're like, this is too much. I don't want anything to do with this. Uh, but for those who persisted and stayed through, I saw a huge transformation across that semester um, where they're starting to question everything that they used to just take for granted. Uh, it's just the way things are. Um, they would ask difficult conversations without being fearful of the answer, but also the students of color felt empowered to correct folks in real time. And I gave them room, you know, to do that as well. Um, so I remember one person, for instance, uh, we were having a conversation about what anti-Blackness means and how it's the inability to recognize Black people's humanity and how a lot of uh, the systems that we have in society today are still rooted in that belief and facet that Black people are just not human in the same way that we are. Um, we are being majority of society or dominant groups. Um, and so one of the white male students in the class has something to the effect of, well, how are we supposed to know how to support black people if they don't tell us? Because, that, because we were having a conversation about how exhausting it is to constantly be educating and increasing the awareness of people who don't change. Uh, and where we haven't seen generational changes, there, there used to be a belief that like an older generation of racist white folks would die out and we'd be okay. Right. I'm like, yeah, but Dylan Roof was 21. so. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is going away with old age, right? Like this is gonna keep happening. Um, and the response I had to the student who asked this question, like how are we supposed to know what to do, how to support black people if they don't tell us? I said, do you see black people as human? And he said, of course. And I said, well, as a human, how would you feel if your child was murdered by the police, right? Like right. as a human, right? And I was like, if we can think of each other as human and, and actually recognize black people's humanity, right? Like how profound would that be in changing the way that we see policies, reactions, structures, society, et cetera. Um, and in that moment, it was like light bulbs <laughs> went off. And then I was like, and I'm not trying to like, you know, shade the student or say like, you don't see black people as human, uh, but it needed to be said and explicated and we needed room and space to have those conversations. Um, unfortunately, in those isolated experiences, I'm teaching at an Ivy League school. Who the hell can afford to come here, right? and take this elective class and have the time to do it in their schedule. And it's an elective. So then they're in their mm -hmm. core classes and they're not talking about race, all right? And then they bring it up and their, their professors are shutting it down because they don't know about it or are not sure if it applies to the statistics class they're teaching. All those statistics came from eugenics, but oh, well, okay, go off. Um, but like, there, there's just this constant separation. Like, oh, you can do that race stuff over here, but then life happens here. I'm like, no, mm -hmm. until we see these things as integrated, and as a way that we need to look at the world and look at life, we're gonna to continue to have the same problems and new iterations and evolutions of the same forms of discrimination we've seen throughout the history of, of this world. Um, so yeah, that's my like broad answer to that, to that question. It's like, it's a combination of increasing awareness of mandating enforcing some changes in law and policy and actually enacting and enforcing those. Um, and then creating just way more opportunities for there to be overlapping conversations. I, part of me wants to start a podcast called Everything is Black and have someone call in and bring up a random issue. <laughs> a random, object, yeah. Whatever, like, or something. My cell phone, what does that do with Black people? I'm like, let me tell you about the minds in the Congress. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 right? like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to connect every single object, every yeah. single conversation that's, that's to Blackness because it is. Because it's there, right? And to help people just make these connections and linkages. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's an awesome response. And so if your family does listen, 
this is indeed why Courtney is getting paid. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So to, to go back to that, you know, your response, like the humanity you publish and you market your work and you work a lot with the business community, you know, you're like, right on wall street, journal, Harvard business review, you know, these companies, um, where it's sort of untypical, right, to thinking of people as like full humans as opposed to, you know, labor to extract from. And we often think about these spaces where like ethics, social responsibility goes to die. So can you tell us about how your work has been received in these spaces, what it's like engaging with these type of audiences? And do you think like businesses have the capacity to see humans as full? I mean, to see people as full humans, black people, brown people, immigrants, poor people, right? Or is it more of like, it's the government's responsibility to mandate it, right? Because they, 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 it's like just antithetical to their whole, to business practices, right? So. Question. Um, so I, I'll start with the business practices and whether or not it's antithetical to it. This is where I think the work of Drs. Leon Preto and Simone Phipps has been so necessary, important to the broader conversation about business and and management practices. So these two scholars are at Clayton State University. Don't quote me on that. Um, They wrote a book on African-American management history and they sort of disrupted this narrative that the only business leaders were white or only had these exploitive capitalist endeavors. But we've actually had people who started businesses in all of the communities that we belong to, they just did it in different ways, ways that have been called cooperative economics. Uh, This is actually things that businesses are trying to reflect now with their sustainability efforts. But if you talk to the indigenous tribe right up the street, they've been doing sustainability efforts and living in harmony with the land as part of their business practice. And this is happening right now in Hawaii where they have uh, native indigenous Hawaiian folks actually being in charge of their tourism campaign. And so they're shutting down uh, over visitations to certain land population or to preserve the land. This is also happening in various parts of South America, right? And it's putting the power of that business, tourism is a huge industry, back in the hands of the people who feel the most responsible to it and for it. Um, And it sort of helps to reflect this idea that not all business practices need to be exploitive and um, extracting the humanity from folks, which actually can happen in harmony. And what Drs. Preto and and Phipps show in their book are these um, Black uh, people from the turn of the, I guess, 18th, 19th century uh, that became millionaires through cooperative economics, where it wasn't just, I'm trying to be a self-made millionaire, but part of them uh, engaging in their business practice was to empower other Black folks. I think the most famous people we probably know from that era are Madam C.J. Walker and Maggie Lena Walker, uh, where Madam C.J. Walker was a hair care uh, titan, and she had a very similar model to what we might refer to as the uh, Mary Kay model today, where she had other Black women learn how to sell her products so that they themselves can also become financially independent and sustainable. Uh, And then Magdalena Walker started the first bank in the United States that was owned by both a woman and a Black person. Um, And her bank provided, you could open an account with no money down, and you actually gained a lot of interest. And it was designed to mostly help um, washerwomen in the South, which was uh, the largest employment or occupation for Black women at that time, uh, have a bank and have a way to securely invest their money uh, and learn about and have financial literacy and and be able to uh, grow their savings in various ways. 
So these are businesses, banking, retail, hair care, right? These are, these are like businesses that exist today, but they have been and continue to be done in ways that can actually look to uplift communities. Um, so I think businesses have always had that potential uh, where we went wrong <laughs> as a society uh, was, I think making the, the lure or appeal of being rich and wealthy seem as if you can't also be in touch or in connection with your community. Um, so I don't know about you all, but there's some ridiculous things that super rich people do that I have no like desire to even know about sometimes. <laughs> um, because it's like, that just gets weird uh, after a while. But, but this like celebritizing of people who make money, this divorcing them from reality, I think that has created a huge fissure in the ability to see people as humans. Back to, back to what you were just saying. Um, and I think about Dan Price, who's a CEO in Washington. I believe he might be in Seattle. Everyone in his organization, regardless of their level of status, makes $70,000 a year, right, including yeah. himself as a CEO. Yeah. And that has made a profound difference in how loyal in terms of retention and committed people are to that organization, um, how happy and healthy everyone is, and then how they see each other as a cooperative, that we own this company together. And we're all valued in the same way. And they actually produce better work than their competitors in other places where they're seeking to make more money and climb this proverbial ladder. Um, so I think like businesses have the potential to shift and change and whether they will or not is, is gonna require lots of moving parts because um, all these industries are intimately tied to each other. Uh, I forget what I was watching the other day, but I was like, if the media industry penalized companies that did this, then companies would change, right? But it requires cooperation from this other industry to, to also enact some policies. It can't just be the government. It has to be the government and media. I think I was thinking about the NFL. So what's going on in the NFL now with um, the Rooney rule not actually creating differences in the makeup and the demographic makeup of coaches. I said, what if the media company said you cannot air your games if you have practice discriminatory hiring practices as a team? Um, like that would actually force the owners of these teams to change because they need the media advertisements to make the money. Uh, but that requires cooperation with so many people who can lose right. out on money if they do this. And so I think it would be really hard to do. But that that would be like what needs to shift and change, right? It can't just be solely government. Um, yeah. and, I, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but President Trump um, oh. in a capitalist society at some point, I knew there was going to have to be a president that had business background. Did I think it was going to be the most underqualified person ever? No. <laughs> but I assume that in a capitalist society, eventually those two things yeah. are going to have to merge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's going to, you know, be important um, moving forward. It's like, if we're going to keep living in a capitalist society, we got to figure out ways to overlap these industries so that they're not seen as completely operating autonomously, but they're actually all interdependent with each other and can interdependently make change. All right, we could keep talking for like another hour, but <laughs> we have been going off for a long enough as is. So thank you, Courtney. Uh, it's always like amazing to kind of like hear your kind of expert takes. Um, brilliant scholar, just always love talking to you. Um, and to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. And we will see you next time on another episode of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations. Bye. Thanks.